Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Want to find the perfect Father's Day card? Dad deserves better than a drugstore card. This year, surprise him with a special personalized card from Moonpig. You can add your favorite photos and a heartfelt message. Plus, no more worrying about stamps or going to the post office, because we'll mail it for you the same day. Every dad deserves a Moonpig card. Get your first card free with code PODCAST at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. I Weigh basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Roland and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Live from King's Place in London, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, and my very special guest, Hannah Gadsby, talking about 10 Steps to Nanette with music from Samfire. Hello, 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 and welcome. Thank you so much for coming out. I know it's always this tricky thing now of coming out, isn't it? Where we think, can we come out? Should we come out? Uh, we're, not, we're not really sure. First, we weren't meant to come out, but then turned out number 10 had come out all the time. And then they said, well, there can't be one rule for us and one rule for them. So it's no rules for everyone. Um, and so, hello, welcome to No Rules for Everyone. It's the Guilty Feminist. Um, hello. Uh, it is really wonderful to be here tonight. I'm going to interview someone tonight. We're, th- we're throwing the format away tonight. If you've come for the normal Guilty Feminist with I'm a Feminist but and all of that, you're not going to get that. You're going to get something better. <laughs> yes, that's right. We're throwing the baby out with the bathwater and we're not looking back because babies, frankly, are annoying. Um, <laughs> no, someone brought one the other night. They brought a baby. It was a lady called Catherine and she had a baby called Sophia. And she was in the audience and I was asking for acts of feminism and I was asking for sort of small acts of feminism so people wouldn't, you know, intimidate each other too early on. We were building to something, building to a climax. And so I was asking for a tiny act of feminism and she said, I'm breastfeeding right now. And I was like, what? And it was this big, old, beautiful, you know, Victorian theatre. And she brought the baby Ford to be blessed. And... (laughs) I sat on the edge of this very high proscenium up stage and I didn't expect her to put the baby into my arms, but do you know she did? And then everyone was like, oh, oh, and I was like, oh, oh, and then the baby started crying. And I went, don't worry, because the audience panicked. They were like, oh no, she should never have tried. This is awful. And I was like, don't worry. They called me the baby whisperer. And then I just rocked her like this and went, don't worry, feminism's here. And she just stopped crying. (laughs) 
That's right. The sisterhood works. My friends, the sisterhood works. She felt it, went into her face. It's like she's been bitten by a radioactive feminism now. <laughs> I didn't bite her. I didn't bite her. And I'm not radioactive. Don't panic if you're very close. Are you ready for our fabulous guest this evening? Um, she's someone I've known for a very long time, and I will explore our relationship live on stage. You will know her from her hit live slash Netflix show, Nanette. Um, you may also know from her follow-up. Now, we were all worried. I, I love this woman very dearly. Um, and I trust her. I trust her massive throbbing talent. But I did not know how she was going to follow up Nanette. I mean, that's a difficult second album situation. And I thought, doesn't matter if it's not as good as Nanette. It can be half as good. You've still done Nanette, and we'll all come along and we'll all really enjoy it. And you don't worry about that. I didn't say that to her, obviously. It's not confidence building. And I'm nothing if not a sister. When I saw Douglas, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, I'm a feminist, but it's a little bit impolite to follow up a show of that magnitude with another incredible show that gave Nanette a run for its money. It's the way I felt about Fleabag season two. Rude. Rude. Rude to other female creatives. So when I went to see Body of Work, uh, which I just did at the Palladium, uh, I was completely unsurprised by what a brilliant work it was as well. And I've spent the last few days reading her book, which you haven't done yet because it's not out yet, but I've had the sneak preview, not because I'm special, but because I'm doing this, just to be clear. And uh, wow, I can't wait to talk about it with Hannah and with you. So with absolutely no further ado, because no one hates a do more than she does, please put your hands together and make incredible woohooing noises for the wonderful Hannah Gatsby! You go, Hannah. They, they didn't cheer quite as loudly for me, I notice. But let's not dwell. I'm here all the time. Now, can I ask, are you all right there? Will you be all right with your leg like that and your stick like that? Do you need any help or assistance or another <laughs> table or anything like that? We'll, we'll, we'll see how we go. I'm all okay. right. Okay. Um, do you want to tell the audience what happened? Sure. Are you interested? Like sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. I think, yeah. I just, I saw your show and you gave it a little bit of context and I thought yeah. it was... It, it is was important. Delightful. To address these things. Um, unless it's a permanent disability, then it's just rude to expect that. FYI. Um, don't ask. Um, so, uh, yeah, I fell over. Just. <laughs> I was walking <laughs> in Iceland. Um, they're not wrong. They mean what they say there. There's a lot yeah. of ice. Um, and the, the warning came. Yeah, it was that. on the label. But I, I broke my foot off um, <laughs> inside the skin, but the bones detached, foot loose. Um, I know, it's a lot. It was a lot. I cried eventually. Um, uh, I was on a fjord. The tide was rising. It, I could have died, but here I am. Everything's okay. But I've got four plates, seven screws, and a trauma band in there now. It's two months ago. I feel feeling good now. I tore a muscle in my back, and then I got COVID, and then I, now I've got shingles. <laughs> I'm having a rough trot. 
Well, this brings us to your book, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> because... What a pro. Um, you won't know this, but Hannah came to stay with my husband and me in 2011. Yeah. We, we're getting to the book. We should probably say how we met. A seg in a seg here. It's a seg. It's a double seg. It's a double segue. We met in the year, I think it was 2007. Mm-hmm. That's my, do you think it was 2007? Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure it was. 2007. Yeah. What's your version of how we met? I know my version of how we met, but I'd love to hear it from your point of view. To be honest, my version of it's been swamped by yours because I don't tell it that often. <laughs> And I've heard you tell your version. I thought, that'll do. It's a really lovely version. (laughs) Sometimes people remember things differently. And Look, I only know this. I know this. Because when I found my biological family, if you enter a family late on, you know, really late in the day, as I have, everyone's got their own version of things that happened. And it's so fascinating because you hear the same story told seven different ways. And none of those ways are probably true. The truth is somewhere in the middle. So I'm just fascinated as to what you remember. Do you remember coming... You might not now. You may only remember me telling the story. But do you remember me coming to talk to you after your show? Yeah, you were wearing a top hat. Oh. <laughs> See, I was wearing a bowler hat. This is how memory uh, works. Yeah. yeah. By the so, way, it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a cabaret phase, gang. It was 2007. What were you doing? Um... I came up to you, I was wearing a bowler hat or a top hat, depending on whose memory is correct. And uh, I had just seen your show and I said to you, I think we should be friends. Mm, Yeah, I do remember that. I was trying the flyer at the time because that was back in the day and I had to... Because I think there was only about four or five people in the show that you saw. Yeah, I thought it was seven. Yeah, I've got a more generous memory of how many people are in the audience. That's why we go with yours. That's always (laughs) why we go. My life is much better through your eyes. Um, And so it was a bit embarrassing that you'd seen that show because it's like shows aren't great with few. The less people, the harder it is. Oh yeah, it's so much easier to play. Oh, somebody's calling in to say they've got a third version of events. (laughs) It was a trilby. It was a trilby. There were 14 people in the show, but five of them were dogs. Um, uh, (laughs) uh, My version of this is there were seven people in the show, but we were all spread out, as people do. People don't want to sit next to each other on the tube. Pre-COVID, too. Yeah. (laughs) Well, pre-COVID. But, you know, if you're sitting here on the tube and you're the only one in the carriage and someone comes and gets and sits on right next to you, clearly there's something very wrong and you should move away, right? That's... Concerning, um, but in a show you need an audience to sit together, and I thought this was the funniest show I'd ever seen. But I, because everyone else was too timid to laugh, they were really enjoying it. Obviously, they found it very funny, but they were too timid to laugh because they felt exposed. So it was just me, roaring, and my very loud laugh. I'm distracting in shows full of laughers. I was roaring on my own. Yeah, I remember. I do remember that. Um, <laughs> and we did. We never met. Because... It was just one. Woman in a bowler hat roaring with laughter. And then she comes up to me after, I want to be a friend. (laughs) And I said... I did, though. Probably not going to (laughs) happen. She she literally backed away. Um, Yeah, I I was honest. I'm like, yeah, I don't... Nah, yeah, I'll see ya. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, fair, I think what I said was, I think we should be friends. And you disagreed. Um... (laughs) 
I said, oh, you've given me nothing but a bowler hat and lonely laughter. <laughs> but at the end of the show, you have to understand, the show was so beautiful. At the end of the show, I, I'd roared with laughter for an hour and then I cried at the end. It was really beautiful. It's my and, thing. Yeah, it is. It was an early version of the thing you saw in the net, but there was uh, less crying and uh, more laughing. That's the, yeah, one of the steps to the net. Yeah. So as a comedian, I got worse. Definitely <laughs> <laughs> not. Uh, and then every time I saw you at a festival, I would come up to you and say, um, hi, it's me again. You could probably tell from the hat. It was a good it was mnemonic. A so- yeah, it was a solid period of time, that hat, <laughs> hat era, wasn't it? it? I had a joke about it in my show, so I had to wear it for the whole show, and then it became my kind of thing, you know. Um, and I remember you saying, you've got this now. Yeah, I have a joke hat. about a broken leg, so I've got to wear this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I remember you being incredibly funny in the bar in uh, Melbourne and I would always come up to you and you would always be so dry and so sardonic and so witty and I just always kept drunk. <laughs> <laughs> kept coming up. And uh, then I heard from a producer I was working with at that time that you were going to come and stay on his sofa. That's the turning point of the story. <laughs> well... I need to just backtrack a bit to the original because when I said, nah, it's all right, nah, I don't need friends, I'm good, you used the phrase, it's okay, I'll play the long game. <laughs> Did I say that at the time? Did I say that out loud? The, I thought I thought that. Put the, nah. This you is why do. I want to hear your version. Do you ever say anything just in your head? Come on. <laughs> you workshop, you workshop. <laughs> you workshop that out loud. It's rare. Um, you said it to put me at ease. Did I? <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't think it's But it's I mean, also, either this is a hostage situation <laughs> or you played a very good game. But in 2011, when I heard you were going to stay with the producer, and he was, he was a real, you know, kind of blokey single bloke, and I just thought, oh, Hannah's not going to do very well staying on his sofa. So I inboxed her and said, I don't think you should stay there. Uh, we have a spare room, which we did at that time, and uh, you can stay here. And I remember you saying, I wouldn't be comfortable unless I paid rent. And I said, no, 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 because you've got Australian dollars and the pound was very strong then. Good times, wonderful times, gang. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 you, you're going to need your money here. It's, it's, not, it's not easy. I said, just come and stay as long as you like. And you said, well, um, unless I'm paying rent, I'll only be comfortable staying two weeks. She stayed three months. Um, <laughs> And we had a wonderful time. And since then, because as Hannah always reminds me, I played the long game. Um, I just lived rent free. It was great. It, <laughs> I would then, when I stayed, at, when I went to the uh, the comedy festival or went to stay in Melbourne uh, to do shows or see family or whatever, I would stay with Hannah. And then when Hannah would come to London, she'd stay with me. And so over the years, we have had a, a friendship where we have. Not We won't see each other for a year, but then we'll live together and stay up all night talking very intensely for a month. And so we know each other very well and we go back. Yeah, I do friendships in small, solid batches. Yeah. <laughs> and it works. It works. I played the long game and it's paid off. Um, here she is now, captive yeah. and with yeah. one leg so she can't even run away. Um, <laughs> the reason I say this is because when you came to stay with me in 2011, mm-hmm. you were writing this book. Yeah, I've been writing this. It's called Ten Steps to Nanette, but back then it was just two steps. 
<laughs> we didn't know where we were going. But interesting, in the introduction, is a story I wrote when I was seven that I used in that first show. Yes. A little, um, how Sif and Soften became friendly with the dragon, part one. And um, so I've, this book has sort of like been written alongside my whole career. Every year I'd write a stand-up show and tour it around the festivals and then incrementally I got sort of closer to, I guess, Nanette and that was the floodgates. Floodgoats, that's what we call it. <laughs> I'm a Capricorn. And <laughs> the Piscean moon. But um, so uh, it sort of worked in, you know, inching toward writing this book and every year I'd sort of undo a little bit more of the puzzle that is me and I, I, I sort of... I was like, the editor, I mean, my publisher's frickin' patient. Because mm. I do remember that. You, what you were doing in the flat in the days when you weren't doing comedy in the evenings, was writing this book. And so that's... I should have just had some fun, because I thought... <laughs> I thought, you know, six months I'll get this done. Like, always was six months. Six months I'll get this done. And I worked as hard as that the whole time. Except for the times I just buried it. And, but whenever I was working on it, I was like, yeah, I'm about six months out. Yeah, no, it does make me feel better, though, about writing. And if anyone here is trying to write a book... Don't. Don't. <laughs> I say that all the time. I say, don't write a book. It's so hard. But once you've written it, having written a book is incredible. It's like a way. baby. Having written a book having is Having a amazing. baby. That's what I hear. People like, oh, you have this amnesia. Yes. My mum said that five times. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's that sort of thing. Like, once, you, once it's done, you just sort of forget about all the trauma. But I can't. It's horrible. Don't write a book. <laughs> yeah. Well, trauma does come up in this book. It um, is. It, that's the it's, spine of it. I've just finished it, and what I would say is, you must read this book. It's something of a masterpiece. I would recommend that you read it in steps. There are ten steps, and you read a step, and then you cogitate on that, you meditate on that, you think about it. It might stir up stuff in you, and then you read another step, maybe the next day. I would not recommend you did what I did, and read it over two days, because it's so... It's a bit dense. Powerful. Like, it really oh. is. No, no. Go with your version. No, no. It's... <laughs> um, I think what it did is agitated a little bit of my trauma, if you see what I mean, because it's so beautifully written. And there are, I think, three distinct parts to it. One is the history of the show Nanette and how the show was written and what it was like to write such a show as a comic and the reception that you got as a comic, and the way that you were able to write such a traumatic uh, show and perform such a traumatic show so many times, and sometimes with hostility from the audience or hostility from the media or social media. That is interesting in itself, but then there's the history of you that weaves through that, and then there's the history of Tasmania as it pertains to gay rights and queer rights in general. And those three things are just weaved so beautifully. And you are, if you don't mind me saying, the queen of structure. Because body of work, I want to see body of work, and it, you could mistake it when you start watching it for like a shaggy dog story. But that dog is clean shaven. It's just, there's not... Is some, it a wig? What's happening to this dog? It's a, it's like How did you mistake it for a shaggy dog if it's clean shaved? Well, that's not... what I'm saying. This, this, look, you think it's going to be a shaggy dog story, but it's an absolute... That dog has had, like, you know, one of those... Uh... Do you want to try another metaphor? <laughs> Imagine a bald dog. Sleek, 
a sleek bald dog that can run very fast. It's just so perfect. Yeah. It's so perfectly structured. And it's, the structure is quite breathtaking. It's a much more happy, joyful show because you're in love now and married. Oh, I wouldn't have led with that, but... Um... <laughs> We'll go with your version. I mean, um, <laughs> it's a much more food. You keep saying it's a feel good show. It's a much more yeah, feel good show than that. Absolutely, yeah. I don't think I've ever used the phrase, oh, I'm in love. I oh, just did then. I just like, oh, so you're married. Is this, is this awkward? Have I, have I. No, it's fine. Because Jenny's like, out the back. You know, it's a work in progress. You know, love's, love's happening. It's, it's there. But, like, I, when I first met my now spouse lady, um, I said to her, uh, it, was, it wasn't about, like, I wasn't playing the long game. It was <laughs> a comment I made. I said, I'm done. I don't want to be in another relationship because I hate falling in love. Like, I hate that process. It's, it feels unstable. It feels like a certain madness. I don't like the decisions I make during that process. Then I then have to live with, with someone who I'd failed to get to know properly because I was falling in love. Um... <laughs> And I just wanted to <laughs> just be 10 years in already. Like, just 10 years in already with someone I'm quite comfortable with. And that, that sort of ended up happening. Uh, Jenna and I worked together, we, we toured together, and we kind of f- f- fell in love. Go with my version. Go on, go with my uh, version. You know, uh, yeah, what she said. And uh, through the work, of course, of working very closely together and getting to know each other, but I am not real bright when it comes to picking up on what other people are putting down or what's happening between me and another person, unless it's said very bluntly out loud, like, I want to be friends. And then I said, well, let me think about that for three years. Um, <laughs> so uh, I think, looking back, in hindsight, absolutely that's what was happening. But in my mind, I'm like, this is fun. This is a nice time. I'm getting to know this very nice person. We're working together. And so we built this language. And then once we sort of, you know, got drunk enough one time... Um, <laughs> It's sort of like it happened, like the falling in love process happened in my mind in hindsight, and it was a really, really safe way for me to uh, to get to know someone intimately. It was great. It's great. Solid. There's no app for that shit, though, is there? Like, there's <laughs> swipe. <laughs> right. Oh, slow love the app. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. If someone could invent slow love the app, because what you've done there is you've you've built a solid working relationship with a good vocabulary and a lot of fun, a lot of play. I remember meeting Jenny when you were at the beginning of the tour, and I think I could see this real dynamism and this intimacy and this language that you had between the two of you, playfulness, and it was really wonderful to see. And so I was delighted when it turned into more and then even more. Well, I think part, a lot of what happened is it was Jenna, Jenna was working with me in the capacity as my producer, and she was introduced to me by my manager. Uh, uh, before we ever met, he gave Jenny a briefing about this guy, and he's worked with me for a long time and um, had worked with me through my di- aut- autism diagnosis. So he gave her a really thorough running down of, like, don't take anything personally. Uh, Hannah may say some offensive things, but you just have to say, did you mean that? Uh, she'll say no, and then you can both keep moving forward. Um, uh, so it was sort of like <laughs> this professional trust that sort of allowed me to make 
my usual run of mistakes that usually have people running a mile, except you, of course. <laughs> I just find you consistently delightful, though, Hannah. I find you very, very funny. And also, your mind for analysis is quite extraordinary. And some of that is in the book. I want to talk about the book. Uh, so do I. Yeah, so much. So much. I've got to shift some units. That's ten years of my fucking life in that. <laughs> I've never, I've never been into self-promotion before, but I'm giving it a real nudge on social media. You go on my social media, like, buy my book. Because I'm like, that is like, oh, shift some units. I, I would like to... Actually, I, I, I would like to read a little bit of the book. I'm excited. I'd love you to read my book back at me. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you... Would you like to read it yourself? No, let's go with your version. <laughs> What are you going to read? Which bit? Well, one thing I thought I could read at the beginning, there's a couple of pieces. The acknowledgements? (laughs) No, I'm not going to read the acknowledgements. It's not to her. I think she's still wounded. I'm in it. I'm thanked. Yeah, yeah. Did you you not? Wow. Did you not mean to thank me? Did someone else say, you've got to? No, I absolutely meant to thank you. Of course I did. I slept slept in your spare room for free. It doesn't say that in the book. No, Um, no, it's private. All right. <laughs> That's your version. <laughs> uh, no, sorry. Okay. As you were. All right. In that case, I'm in that case. I'm going straight to this bit, which is, I think, fascinating. About uh, it's a little bit about how you wrote uh, the net. Um, I had long known. That's that, not how I sound in my head, but keep going. <laughs> I had long known. <laughs> <laughs> I can do you if you want. I do do you in my show at the moment. Please. You want me to? Oh, God. I've never done it with you here. Okay. I, I had long known <laughs> that sounds had the potential to trigger physical okay. pain right, in my body. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go with your voice. <laughs> let's, let's go with... I don't like my voice all of a sudden. But I had only just begun to actively search for sounds that triggered pleasant responses. The list of good feeling sounds, however, is nowhere near as long as that of the painful ones. But of them, there are a handful that feel exquisite. And of those, the most important to me is the sound of a teacup hitting its saucer. The sound does not simply feel beautiful. It comes attached with memories of being loved and feeling safe. I had been funneling every bit of my thinking into the creative process. Come on, I'm going to stop you there. You can, <sighs> I have to read it. Okay. You're going to give you... them the wrong idea. Where am I going? Like, you, okay. you just sound so much more posh than me. So can you read from there to there? To there? Yeah, yes. and then I was going to flip over. You were, or are you going to turn the page? <laughs> Where are you going to read on this page? Show me and I'll... I was going to then go uh, from that, from there. I'm yep, just, gonna go just from that, that, top. that paragraph. Go from the, under the picture. Oh, you... Oh, it's a little... There's a little... Um, yeah, all right, the picture. Not under the picture. I'm not allowed to mark this book up, otherwise it would have scribble all over it, but I can't. Fine. Jenny's told me I have to give it back. Oh, that's oh, mine, isn't it? Yeah. Hey, it's really fancy. Look at the front. I have one at home. Silver! It's fucking silver! Look at that! That's how annoyed they took... They gave me a silver medal for finishing. Oh. I was just like, thank fuck. Alright, I've lost the page. Okay. Oh, that's alright. Alright, I'll start again. Let's get this in. Alright. You could just take it from that. Do you remember that, what From said? feeling safe. I had been funneling. Alright. Thank you. 
<laughs> we know each other very well. It's fine. <laughs> I had been funneling every bit of my thinking into the creative process. So it is quite possible that I wasn't working with my best decision-making mind at the time. But I did what I did, and this is what I did in the order I did it. First, I went through all of my cards and picked out ten that I felt really good about. Then I cleared the next four days of absolutely everything, stocked my kitchen up with nourishing food, locked the front door and turned my phone off, and spent the next few days repeating each of those ten phrases over and over again, under the influence of my best guess at micro doses of MDMA. <laughs> Excellent. I only came up with the idea when a friend who was leaving for the UK left me a small measure of MDMA. <laughs> as a parting gift. I was delighted as I like feeling good but hate going out of my way to break the law. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Can't stand it. Is that it? No, you can't. Oh, okay. I'd been educating myself on all things trauma for a few years by then and had become quite intrigued by research being done into the microdosing of various mind-altering substances. To be clear, I am under no illusions that I am an expert. I know exactly what I was. I was desperate. I'd been swamped with the effects of trauma for as long as I could remember. And it was clear that the cutting edge of medical science was not going to cut through my trauma in my lifetime because the cutting edge never seems terribly concerned with the biological specifics of autistic women, or any women for that matter. What did I have to lose? My mind. The answer is... <laughs> um, so although this is step nine, I'm quite intrigued to start with it because it's about the genesis of Nanette, this show that we all love. And what fascinated me when you unpacked this is how this was such a left field way of doing something, but it was a way that you were able to penetrate the subject and cope with talking about it. Can you unpack that a little bit more about what you did? Well, uh, throughout my career, I talked about a lot of the themes that I did in Nanette, so, but I always moved around them at a safe distance because trauma, uh, I'm assuming a lot of people you understand is when you think about it, it's hot in your head. Like it, It's painful to look directly at a traumatic memory. That's why we don't hold very cohesive memories about trauma because uh, your brain doesn't really want you to go there. So in order to write about it, it was before I even got to the performance of it. Um, it just even thinking about it was a really distressing thing to do. But, but for some reason, I felt really compelled to drill through it. And uh, that was, I did that after my first ever trial show of it. And I'd been, for a couple of weeks, been just scribbling these, like, little like, things, you know, no, there's nothing stronger than a broken woman, blah. You know, like, just all of these sort of phrases. A lot of them ended up in the final show. Like, I knew what I was doing, even though I didn't at the same time. And I was just, like, mad, just, like, oh, just scribbling these. I think you saw me at some stage in that process. Uh, I came up, I was in your kitchen, and I remember you said, do you mind if I just run this show for you? And you just stood up in your kitchen, yeah, with all these cards. Talk and data. Yeah. Go back, go back uh, for all those years. And it was absolutely... I think I remember you were wearing a cowboy hat. And uh, 
You weren't. It was my gardening hat. Uh, <laughs> um, and you were just in a stream of consciousness about all these subjects. I thought it was brilliant. And then we went and you did a preview. Yeah, so I had these cards, and there's like about nine or ten different threads that run through Nanette. And at that stage, there's probably another ten on top. I, I, I culled. But I hadn't done that culling, so it was just all these, you know, all these little ideas interconnecting. I knew they could interconnect, but I hadn't got the order of things. And I was stacking them and trying it all day before this show. It was like, this one, this one, then this one. I had this, this, this great stack of cards, and I walked on stage and like, dropped them all. And it was in the best possible order I could. I'd spent days working on this order, and then it was just like, fuck. So I just picked them all up and just put them in this basket, walked on stage... And then just started yelling <laughs> these cards at people. And one of the first ones they pulled out shouldn't have been at the top. You know, it, was, it had been carefully put down the bottom because it was an incredibly triggering uh, bit of ever in relating art history and uh, sleeping women and non-consensual touch from men, let's put it that way. But it was very blunt language and it was associating my history of that and the prevalence of it in art history. Um, and it was the first one said very bluntly, and I'm like, I can't read that out off the top. I had enough of my wits about me not to read that, so I just said, oh, too soon, which is both true and a joke. It worked. People were like, oh, you're being odd. Um, <laughs> but what happened in that moment, because I was so frazzled about doing a, a trial show, a new material, and it was a very risky show. It was always a risky show, both for me and what I was doing to the audience. I, I realised I wasn't breathing. And I'm like, oh, I should do, I should remedy that. <laughs> and I went to take a breath in and realised uh, that's where I was already. So it was like... And I thought I was having a panic attack. Um, uh, and I... I, it's a sort of a meltdown situation, we use the proper autistic language. I thought I was about to have a, a meltdown, and I'd never had a meltdown on stage before. I'd, I'd reliably avoided that. I, I shut down on stage, uh, if anything. I just go, no more import. <laughs> um, but uh, it felt very frightening thing and very vulnerable thing to do um, because you lose control of your movements and... Uh, I was just one card out of the basket. It seemed a lot, um, and it was in this little moment that I realised, no, this isn't a this isn't a meltdown. I'm triggered. I've just triggered myself with my own joke that I hadn't even said, and that's the moment where I'm like, this is a really dangerous show for me to do. Like writing the show, I realised that I was working with very hot material, and I was more concerned about the audience because I was doing triggering material without a trigger warning, and I took that seriously. But the reason I was doing that is because so many comics get on stage and just make jokes about these triggering things and making jokes about people being triggered and, you know, mocking that thing. And I'm like, I wanted to show why we need a trigger warning. It's because you don't take care of the subject. And I wanted to not give a trigger warning, but take care of the subject and actually provide a safe space. My, a bit lofty. Get over yourself, Gads. But that was the intention going in. Um, but then in that moment, I realised how genuinely dangerous it was for me as a, as a human being. Um, so that's why I thought, oh, I'll microdose some MDMA and move on. That's... <laughs> <laughs> you talk about stimming in this section. Yeah. Can you unpack... This is fascinating to me. A, what stimming is, in case people don't know, and then B, how you managed to do that on stage. 
Uh, it's a self-soothing behaviour. Um, I was very late diagnosed, so I'd hidden most of my uh, stims. Um, I've started to embrace it a little bit. I, I'm always doing my uh, my hair's a mess because um, that's what I do. I, I've learned a piece of piano that I do, and that's just repetition. I play one piece beautifully. People think I can play. I can't. Just this one thing. It's about repetition, and it's about something. Uh, there's not enough research done into it. Um, it's often viewed as disruptive behaviour, something to stop. Um, but I feel like there's a middle ground. It makes autistic people feel safe in their body. It brings them back into their body. And uh, I think, you know, it would be great if we were, you know, could talk about it and exhibit the stimming a little bit more. So I didn't talk about my autism directly in Nanette, but uh, I incorporated some stimming into it. Uh, so through these cards that I practiced whilst microdosing, um, what I was doing is I, I call it a lily pad of stimming throughout the show. So in those parts, because I'd associated with, you know, trying to do some, you know, uh, neuroplasticity and creating positive, really positive memories of these phrases and how they felt in my mouth and the rhythm of them and my actions that I did with them. So the teacup was one of them. And, like, so, you know, like, that... When I... Every time I performed that in the show, that doing that would bring my, my body and my uh, heart rate into a more sort of stable position. Because I was... When I was performing that show, it was an agitated state for the really troubling bits, but then I'd have these little things. You know, my mum's voice in the show was a grounding thing because that was an impersonation, so every time I was like, oh, Hannah. You know, as soon as I do that, it's like, oh, yes. So it's a, it was a sort of like um, manufacturing some, some stimming into the performance without it looking like mm. stimming. You said that if you did other sorts of stimming that you might do at home you might lose your authority with the audience. So you had to sort of hide it and Yeah, you're not going to do this. You're not going to do this. Like, uh, you know, like, men suck. You know, like, they're not... <laughs> uh, there's a hand-flapping gesture for those listening at home. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't... Yeah, when I get really agitated, I do that. It's not... I don't... Because I'm a sh more of a shutdown autistic than a, a physically expressive. So I tend to just sort of shrink. But because this was so... Agitating. I, I, I felt like I was like in, in this sort of place where I could just start, lose control of my, my movements. I had no idea you were doing that. It was so clever when I read about it that like things like impersonating your mother could bring you back and you could treat that in that way. Um, how was it repeating that show? First of all, you had to develop it and find it on stage. Once you'd found it, uh, what I find fascinating in the book is how you talk about the journey of how it became different every time you performed it because once people started to know about it, it had a reputation, the audience turned up in a different state. Could you talk about the nature of developing the performance or arriving in your relationship with the audience? Well, I mean, you know this from performing in Edinburgh. Every single room has its own energy and uh, often, particularly in smaller rooms, I, I often think an audience has a team meeting and decides what mood they're bringing in. It's oh, quite phenomenal. Completely, completely. Um, and so you didn't get to the team meeting in that first show you saw of mine. Um, I was left off the WhatsApp. She bought, <laughs> she bought her own vibe. Um, 
so, <laughs> so uh, you know, in various festivals that I performed at, there was different sized rooms which, which affected it. In Edinburgh, it was chaotic. It was just like, I think it was 50-seater, but it was a, a tutorial room, so everyone had like a little tiny desk and they were just like... It was like someone was kicking off at a family reunion and it's me. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know. Um, so... <laughs> So, it, you know, sometimes in these big, large, cavernous rooms, I felt like a, you know, a very in, in great command of the moment. Um, but in the smaller rooms, I felt really vulnerable and at risk. And sometimes I was super angry. Other times I was... It was really hard to do because I felt in quite a good mood. Um, but I kept the back ten minutes of the show. I, I refused to let my mind get comfortable with the closing 10 minutes. So there was about half an hour's worth of material that I could draw from in those last 10 minutes. And that's what kept my body in the room and at risk. Because the thing, when you repeat a performance, you get a certain amount of safety. And I felt I owed my audience, at the very least, to be the most vulnerable body in the room because I was dealing with incredibly difficult and triggering subjects. So I reverse engineered that vulnerability because through... You know, once I got comfortable with the show, then it became a friend. Mm. And exposing your vulnerability, to me, when I saw it, was sort of the point of the show, that you were showing often men who perhaps didn't understand what it might be like, but you were showing all of us. You were showing people who hadn't grown up visibly queer what it was like, and... We needed to see the full vulnerability. You talk about hecklers in the book. I, <laughs> I was there one night at Soho Theatre. Do you remember when that awful man heckled? And it was really awful because he waited till you were your most exposed and you'd really taken the armour off. And he waited and waited and waited. And I think he was quite a violent man. Uh, but you talk about being heckled. I tore him in your asshole then, didn't I? You but did, I, I but it was still it wasn't. Dis- I wasn't in dis- control. Dis- I was not in control. I... I took his words, they were hot, and I just shouted at him for a bit. But I do remember that a, an old couple dealt with him. Like, the old man came down to see if I was all, all right. And the old lady was beating this guy out with a hand. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, uh, can, can you talk about that? You talk about heckling in the book, and it's somehow... Because you were saying, look, this is such a vulnerable experience, and it... If anyone hasn't seen the net, we should probably at this point... It's a bit late now. Yeah. <laughs> guess give a little... It's not funny. A little bit of context that it's a very funny comedy show, but that it has a turn, and Hannah talks about how in a traditional joke structure, what we don't get is the payoff or the catharsis. So you can actually make a joke about yourself, but sometimes you do that in a self-deprecating way. And what you can be doing is packaging your trauma and giving it out in a little nugget, but you're never getting this catharsis and this payoff. And so at the end of the show, she really shows us what this structural violence and actual physical violence has done to her. And it's really arresting to watch if you haven't seen it. And so I think men who in the audience felt very defensive, like this isn't my fault, or perhaps they felt like they knew they had been violent at some point in their life, and they felt exposed. When you did get men heckling, what was that like? Well, it was uh, the thing about the show is that uh, I, I work very much on the natural tension that comics use to manifest in a room in order to diffuse, which makes uh, laughing easier. And it's a very different quality of silence than a bored audience. 
Um, that is, a bored audience is actually quite loud. The, the fidgeting, moving, that you can you know, smell the nervousness. People are scared for you because, like, we're bored. Um, uh, but uh, the quality of the silence with Nanette was, was palpable. It was th- thick and almost audible to my ears. Um, and it took a lot of strength not to just make people laugh in those moments. Like, I think uh, critics of Nanette actually have no appreciation about how hard that is, like, not to make a tense audience laugh because it's reflex. It's like, I've primed my audience. So it was in the middle of these uh, moments that people... And it felt violent in the room when these voices would would cut out from this collective sort of uh, tension because it felt like we're all in sharing the one breath and then someone would call out. And I always saw it as, like, you know, uncomfortable men often probably bought to the show by someone else. You know, I don't think they bought tickets. Um, and it was in the particularly in the early days of the show uh, when it was a bit looser in its structure. But as it went on, there was no real room for people to heckle. Um, but when they did, it felt violent, to be honest. Um, and I never handled it well. Like, when I'm doing a normal show and someone heckles, I, I'm fine with it. It's, you know, you take what people say, you turn it around, you have the loud stick, you really are in control. Sorry about the edit there, Tom. And um, so, you know, there is this thing. You have, you have skills and, and you work up techniques to deal with, with that, but in that I didn't, have, I didn't have the capacity. I was a loose unit, as you would say. So I never enjoyed the heckles. I never won. I never won. I'd often just get really angry and that was not what I was trying to do with the show. It, it was... Uh, the fact that there were heckles there at such moments, though, I think, spoke to the power of the show. Did it change dramatically after it became successful? How, what was your relationship with the audience at that point when people were coming because they'd heard of it or they were coming back? No, or... it surprised... Like, audiences who knew the something was up was still... It was still shocking. Um, because I, I crafted it that way. So I lull, like, they knew what to expect, but the first part of the, the performance is deceptively, you know, cheeky. Uh, the, the only time it really made a, 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 two little, thing, little things. One was the Me Too mo- movement. <laughs> like, when that, uh, that it was about halfway through the, the run of Nanette, about six or seven months in, I felt like there was a different quality to the silences. I felt like before that, the sort of people in the room were in their own bubble of trauma and tension, and once Me Too broke, it felt like there was a, like a, an electricity in those moments. That was quite an interesting difference. Mm. I felt like it was more galvanising as opposed to strickening. Um, I don't know if that's even a word. And the other thing, I performed it once uh, after it was released on Netflix, and that ruined it. Because people started to join in on my setups and applauding before I even got to the... So it's like they, people were comfortable with what I was saying. I wasn't challenging anyone, and so it was no longer a viable live show. And that was the last time... You say in the book that's the last time you did it. You walked off the stage and said, I can't do this show anymore, because they were joining in almost like it was a song that they knew the lyrics yeah, to. Yeah, And it meant so much to people. So that's why they wanted to sing along. But yeah, ultimately... look, I'll, look I'll make a, I might make a... Broadway musical out of it for that. So sop, sop up that audience. But the the, the show... There's w- money to be made, Hannah. It's <laughs> musical. Imagine. The, the show worked because people needed 
to believe that ultimately I was going to end on a laugh. And that I didn't. Spoiler mm. alert. So in the live show, people coming to the live show, the, the, the ratio of people who knew it was going to end on a laugh was too large for the show to be viable, for that tension to be real. And that in itself triggered an enormous response in the comedy community. And I love that in the book uh, that you say... I understand better than most that Nanette is not technically a comedy show, but the twist is she is not comedy in the same way that Frankenstein's monster is not a human. And so you talk about... This is a, such a brilliant part of the book. You talk about how you took comedy apart. You were such a practitioner of comedy by this point. You had so much skill that you were able to take it apart the way a mechanic might take an engine apart and then put it back together. Could you talk about how... It's not just a theatre show done in a comedy context uh, because some of the critics, and some of these critics are quite famous comedians. Uh, On their way out. <laughs> went, ah, it's not comedy, ah, it's not comedy, ah, it's not comedy. Uh, oh, it's brilliant, but it's not comedy. And some of them, some of them got angry about it, yeah, which what? was so bizarre to me. Look, uh, you know, they've got their own baggage there that that's... Um, informing that response, and that's protecting a turf. These a lot of these comics have, you know, they've built their name out of a craft that I've, in theory, rubbished. I haven't really. Um, so there's a lot of defensiveness in that, and you know, I guess it's a complex emotional landscape that I'm not interested in exploring too much. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but or. Can you speak to the Frankenstein's monster? Well, the, 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 okay, I, was t- I was coming at it from a very art historical uh, perspective, and that is when the world's in flux, art forms shift. And I felt like, you know, I was participating in an art form that was in a little bit of stagnation, and I felt like, you know, it was written in the year that uh, Trump was elected, so that whole and the plebiscite in Australia and your Brexit, like it, it was tectonic shifts. And I just felt like the form needed to fit the moment and that is the form needed to shift. So I took everything I knew about comedy and the show, whole show is built around the concept of a callback, which is my favourite device in comedy you, you know it's even my favorite device in conversation like I love a callback I can make people believe I've been participating in a conversation for hours by simply <laughs> recalling something someone said earlier and it was like oh remember the good times um, <laughs> so the the structure of the show is built around the callback but the the idea of the callback is to lay a foundation and a, a it's a really beautiful idea in comedy because you've got a room full of strangers and in the beginning of a set or a show, you create this shared memory of a joke. And then later on, you recall that. And it's the closest thing, I think, in this art form that is one of the most intimate and lovely forms of shared interaction and communication. It is like a shared joke you have amongst friends where all you need is like a raised eyebrow or a common word. You all know it and a group of friends will all laugh and it's, you have to be there. It's a private joke. And that was, like, I like to create that in my, my shows because it's this intimacy that you create with a room full of strangers. And so I did that with this show and there's a lot of different versions of it, but the whole thing is ultimately a giant one of those. And so I create this story that I tell in the beginning 
Um, and usually with a callback, the idea is you get a huge payoff, a big laugh by referring to it later. But instead of that, I gave the truth behind the joke that happened earlier. So that intimacy that I'd created with the joke the first time round was then palpable and shared amongst everyone in the room because we'd all laugh together about that moment. But instead of getting that payoff of a callback in the laughter, I got the emotional resonance of the, 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 the trauma, the, the, my pain, and I felt that was shared amongst strangers in the room. So that is comedy without the laughs. <laughs> yeah. So fascinating the way you deconstructed in the book that you knew exactly what you were doing. And I think a lot of the criticisms have been like, but some of it wasn't funny. It's like, yeah, but well, that was on purpose. Yeah, that was not... I should share that. Yeah. <laughs> that you were able to create something that looked like comedy, that felt like comedy, but then you whipped the rug out and that you were able to produce a much more powerful effect than the laugh that would have been there. But you also talk about the current feeling of some comedians and some people just who are frightened on social media of just the idea of a comedian getting laughs. A comedian's only job is to get laughs and it doesn't really matter what they say and it doesn't really matter what the impact is. It's just laughs, 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 laughs. And you say that the in we've got the internet for that now. Yeah, like I think I don't think the line is important in comedy anymore. In that, like, if at least comedians saying, you know, comedians are, you know, uh, heroes of free speech because we say things that everyone else is too scared to say, and I'm like, nobody is scared of saying anything. Go on Reddit, like it's, <laughs> it is all out there, and it's unmediated, and it is. It is uncrafted and it is hot and it is careless and it is cruel, big fan. And um, so I, I sort of think we have this, you know, it's, I don't call it a responsibility, but it's an opportunity to craft something that perhaps can hold a little bit more sort of uh, constructive collective thought. As, you know, I think there was a time when, you know, comedians were able to do these things. They're still able to do it. No one is cancelling these comedians. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not... It's boring. Like, it is a boring idea to go, I'm going to push the envelope. I'm going to punch down on marginalised communities because no-one else is doing it. Oh, but they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, you don't really need to make a joke about the Romney Traveller population. There's already bunch of structural and physical violence also, doing that for you. if you're just going to take that, like that joke, mm -hmm. and you don't want to care about humanity, it's a shit joke. Like, it's formulaic, it's pushing mm -hmm. no actual craft envelope. It could have been written by any one of his, his many writers. <laughs> I've got to shift some units. I don't um, really mean it. I'm just saying controversial things. Get a bit I of mean, hot wind. We That's what he did. <laughs> we don't have to put this in the podcast, but you say that Ellen said we can, we don't have to put this podcast, uh, but we can if you want. Uh, so I'll just she's you, fine. I mean, she's fine. These people who are sen comedians are very sensitive, but uh, the, these the com I will go after wealthy comedians because they have a team. They don't have to get sad. Like they, <laughs> you can afford to to uh, you know outsource your emotions to other people to absorb this pain. Like if you have a public profile, you have a responsibility to absorb criticism. And one of the things that frustrates me so much with comedians is where are the jokes about Bob Saget? I'm not going to make those jokes. 
I don't think... Uh, people are grieving and he was a nice guy. But that comedians get to choose who gets their, 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 their knife or their, their, their edge. And it's never another comedian. And I don't, I don't like that hypocrisy. I mean, if you give it, you need to be able to take it. And they can't. You, you, <laughs> you, I just want to shift some units. Yeah. <laughs> you do actually talk about your most harsh critics being lesbians. You say, <laughs> I do think, however, I might have a little bit of an advantage over most comedians. Are you happy with me reading this in my voice? I do think, however, I'm, I'll read it fast so that you don't have to listen to it. Uh, I do think, however, I might have a little bit of an advantage over most comedians because the predominant... Dem- and this is an advantage over comedians who are new to criticism. Because the predominant demographic of my core audience has always been lesbians. If an audience of lesbians don't like your comedy, they will shut you down. And lesbians don't need to retreat to the safety of the internet either. They'll hold you to account right there and then. And I'm not talking about quaint interventions like heckling or booing. It's so much worse than that. It's cold. Um, you have been trained by an audience of lesbians you've talked about this before that Mm. they come they criticise you Um, uh, I couldn't you just get called out all the time and and sometimes they'll just sort of approach you either while you're still on stage they'll call out out subcommittees Um, (laughs) often they'll uh, come up to you afterwards and say I didn't appreciate what you did and you're just forced to go well okay do I really want to do that then? Like, sometimes I don't, I reckon you should just try and absorb that, or other times, like, actually, I didn't think about it like that. I didn't, you know, I made, when I was younger, I made a lot of jokes, you know, I, I was known to make some vaguely, you know, latent homophobic jokes, some, you know, I mean, by today's standards, you wouldn't call them transphobic, but... Um, just a little ignorant in the way that I talked about gender uh, and I would just have people saying, hey, didn't like that. And it just felt quite easy to go, oh, okay, have a think about it. I don't know why these guys with massive platforms are so sad. I'm like, who's your team? Um, uh, and also, you know, like, uh, uh, I made some fat phobic jokes when I was younger and I got dressed down about that. Rightly so. Um, it was obviously not dealing with my own body image issues. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just... I couldn't afford to offend my audience. That They were it. You know, so, uh, you know... I, and I, I feel strongly that comedy is a conversation with your audience. Mm. Um, like, if you... You know, if your audience isn't laughing, you're either not delivering your material well enough, it's not written well enough, or you're actually coming at it from the wrong point of view. Um, and it's worth playing with that. And, you know, I believe most of the things I say. I'm not doing it just because I think people need a laugh because mm. no one's speaking the truth because they are. Mm. Indeed. Well, it's time to finish our first half and let these good people go to the loo and get a drink and turn <laughs> themselves around. Uh, so I'll just finish this uh, with a little quote from your book here. You say, laughter is rarely benign, but it is often malicious. So I don't think it really matters much if you think your jokes are pure. You're a chump if you think an audience cares about your intentions. They'll take your harmless jokes and laugh for their own harmful reasons. Or in the case of me, not laugh at all, because I won't rest until comedy is dead. (laughs) Thank you very much. See you after the interval. Have a Gatsby, everybody.
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to find the perfect Father's Day card? Dad deserves better than a drugstore card. This year, surprise him with a special personalized card from Moonpig. You can add your favorite photos and a heartfelt message. Plus, no more worrying about stamps or going to the post office, because we'll mail it for you the same day. Every dad deserves a Moonpig card. Get your first card free with code PODCAST at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place, or from She-Hulk, or from social media and my activism. I Way basically started as a social movement, and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn, and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Way with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists, and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Rowe. Roland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, we've got more on the net to cover and we've got some audience questions here as well, which we're excited to get to. Let's do a deep dive into 10 Steps to Nanette. And I, I want to look at your personal history now because it's so fascinating. Uh, what is your family nickname and why? <laughs> it's Godslay or Godders. Um, <laughs> because I entered into this school uh, stamp explorer ruse where they're like, kids, you love stamps. And, um, like, yeah, we're easily fooled. And um, I spelt my name wrong. And so for years I just get mail to Miss Hanoir Godslay. But <laughs> the thing is, it wasn't... It was a form where you filled in... You coloured in the letters of your name because it was read by machine. So it wasn't even my messy, childish handwriting. It was just like, I got bored colouring in the circles. Here's a few <laughs> random ones. Godslay, that'll do. Like, G-A-D, like... A is the first one, but I'm like, not today. <laughs> I want this vowel. It's Godslay. So Godslay. And to this day, your family call you Godslay? Yeah, Godders. Godders. <laughs> <laughs> and that really gives us a little insight into the dynamics of your family. Lots of children in your family. Lots of siblings. Well, they're all grown up now. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I wasn't meaning to imply Time they'd happened. stayed... I'm not, yeah. I wasn't yeah. implying they'd stayed children and you were the only one Younger, who had grown youngest up. Of, youngest of five, and we were all... And, uh, mum had five kids within nine years of each other. So like that was... Yeah, yeah. a lot Efficient. for her. Yeah. Efficient. A lot for her, I would say. Um, yeah, took a toll. Yeah. Uh, you, you had an amusing relationship with your mother, and you, you talk about how funny she was. Yes. And still, still is, is, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to imply that she's no longer funny. Uh, <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but also her dynamic with you was really interesting. You at one point talk about the fact that she, you had, uh, if, you, if you had a medical complaint, she wouldn't necessarily take you to the doctor. Yeah, mum has a complex relationship with uh, medicine um, and uh, I think there's a bit of a history there. I think she had a, uh, uh, some family issues with mistrust with doctors, which is not my story to tell, but that uh, she brought it into my <laughs> our relationship. So it's, I'm very accident prone. This is not new. Um, part of my where I am on the spectrum, I have a process. Pro, I can't even say the word. That's how bad it is. Um, Proceception. Balance. So... I'm quite coordinated, hand-eye coordination is quite good, but when I'm falling or I'm, uh, I can't quite balance, I don't intuitively correct myself. And so I, have, I do have a lot of accidents. Um, and I have always had these accidents, which is unfortunate to be accident-prone and have a mother like mine who has a, like, just a really deep distrust of doctors. So I was pretty much a hypochondriac with symptoms. And... <laughs> And so, like, you know, things went a little a little too long without, you know, I had gallstones and she's like, she just wants to get out of work. <laughs> um, and that went on for a little too long until I got jaundice because one... <laughs> we're fine. And, like, mum, mum also is just, like, feels terrible, terrible. She's just so certain in her diagnosis. Rejection. That, um, <laughs> that, you know, once it's clear and, you know... It's rectified. She feels terrible, but it is like I bore the brunt of that. Like, so she always had like there's three. She was our doctor. She wasn't qualified, but so she would have like three things in a medical kit, which was always like a list of chores. <laughs> it's like, oh, you've got a headache, have you? Well, the kitchen needs doing. Um, <laughs> I'd like a cup of coffee if you think you've broken your arm. Um, one time I what? fell over and I broke my elbow. That's ended up what happening. But, you know, I, I wasn't an x-ray, so it was like it just hurt. And for some reason, I was just playing basketball on my own. Um, <laughs> and, I, well, the reason I fell over is because I'd had a knee reconstruction when I was 11. And it didn't take because, you know, it's very hard to fix ligaments when, you, when you're still growing. But I didn't, when I re-snapped it... I didn't tell anyone because I'm like, well, we've already been through this. So I just had this really unstable knee throughout my adolescence. And so I was playing basketball by myself, as you do. And my knee gave way and I landed on my elbow and it shattered. Uh, and so then I'm like, oh, that hurt. But for some reason in my head, I thought I'd get in trouble for playing basketball on my own. There's no logic to this. Um, so I went into Mum and I said, Mum, I hurt myself. And I think she was sick of me saying that. Um, and she said, we need the go get the carrots for dinner. Like, that was her response. Oh, no, for, no, to be fair, she said, ow, what did you do? And I lied because for some reason I thought the truth was, I've done something wrong, I don't know what's happening, it's complex, we're fine now. But I said, I, I ran into the couch, which is not... <laughs> yeah, that's not plausible. That's soft furnishing. So she yeah. rightly didn't think I was too badly injured. So she sent me out to get the carrots for dinner, and so I went out and, you know... Um, I'm just I could pull the carrots out, but then that's it, because it's like it's a one-arm job. So I went in with these 
dirty carrots that were still attached to the greenery. And that wasn't enough. You do your jobs properly. Get back out there and you do your job properly. So I'm out there just going, trying to step on the carrots to get the... And I'm like, it's not working because it's like, you know, they're very healthy carrots. Dad was a really good gardener. Um, And so Dad came home from school and he was a teacher. Um, He wasn't really behind. (laughs) He got kept back 20 years. And I'm in the middle of the backyard with all the carrots in my hand, just doing a helicopter, waiting for them <laughs> to slowly spin off yeah. one by one. Um, and we go pick them up, put them... And it's like, he's like, what are you doing, mate? I hurt my arm. He said, let's go to the hospital. Um, so mum had backup. But the thing is, nobody remembers that story. So I would tell, like, remember when I broke my elbow and everyone's like, nah, mate. Because I was just always injured. Mm. Like, you know, they say a lot of trauma is lack of a credible witness. And uh, that, that's an example. That's yeah. an example. It's like, yeah. no, I broke my arm. There's nothing worse as a child when people can't remember the terrible thing that happened to you and you're adamant. I, I mean, it's happened. Like, one time I got hit by a car in Vienna. Um, <laughs> this is what the book was about in 2011, by the way. Mm-hmm. You, I remember you reading. Did, yeah. You so, would read sections out to me and it was all about your yeah. injuries. So and this one was not really written. My, thank you. My, my fault. I, I, I'd forgotten which way the traffic goes. In, I was visiting a friend after the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I was on their bike. Um, and I rode out going, oh, yeah, there's no traffic, and rode out, and there was fucking traffic coming that way. So I just got bam, bam, and I went... uh, They um, took me to get some x-rays. I pretty much had the car imprint on this side of my body. Unfortunately, I am a unit. Nothing was broken. But um, the, the doctor, attending doctor, said, yes, but when did you break your leg before? And I said, I have never broken my leg. And he said, yeah, you have. Um, and he showed me the, the x-ray and it's just like this, you know, a, obviously an old crack, as they say in the biz. They don't, but I said, <laughs> an old crack in my leg. But presumably you'd said to your mum, oh, I just fell over and hurt myself by, while I, I lent on the dog. <laughs> And she said... Oh. That one was an adult. I was, remember, I think I know when that happened. I think I just... I thought I'd just sprained my ankle. But it was really... I'd broken and it had just... Because I walk, kept walking on it. Like, I, I, and I have a weird relationship with pain. I don't... I have a very high pain threshold. Um, like, as we speak, I feel like I'm being gently whipped on my butt from shingles. But it feels mildly pleasant, as opposed... <laughs> As opposed to the terrible pain I'm told from others who have had shingles of late. I mean... It's, like, de- it's more of a, g'day. <laughs> <laughs> it depends what you're into. Um, <laughs> not shingles, it's not great. My, um, puts a whole new spin on M&S. S&M. <laughs> I meant shingles and mas- masochism. But I am so unbelievably middle class, I accidentally said, I accidentally said marks and shingles. Um, I mean, I'm not even that posh. I'm from the Gold Coast. I'm from, have you seen Muriel's Wedding? I'm from there. I don't know. I'm fascinated in the book, the way that you pinpoint times, I think, when comedy and your unusual mind 
are tools that you use in your childhood for both self-protection and creativity. So one that I absolutely loved is... Um, do you want to read that? Because sure. I think it'll be funnier if you right, give it give the it authentic. Oh, classic. <laughs> <laughs> to give a bit of context, I was in, uh, when I think, first or second year of high school, and my dad was my maths teacher. Um, and it wasn't a great... I was terrified because, you know, you want to go under the radar and this was not an easy thing to do. He said. So my fears played out at the end of the very first class when, as we were filing out, bottlenecked at the door, a girl, let's call her Karen, <laughs> muttered, your dad's fat. She had said it loud enough for the group effect, but it did not hang in the air for long enough to gather much tension because as soon as Karen's taunt had been issued, I fired back. Well, at least we know who my dad is. <laughs> Everybody within earshot laughed, and it was a sweet, sweet moment. I had entered the classroom with a target on my back and had emerged a hero, even if it was just for a nanosecond. What nobody else knew was just how much work I had put into the preparation of that quip. <laughs> so... I was, suffered a little of selective mutism. I wasn't non-verbal. I could speak, but not always when I wanted to. And I didn't always have access to words. So I would uh, practice. I would have a roster of phrases and ideas that I could uh, navigate, you know, enough chat with just rope, as you say, conversational rope. Uh, and going into that year, I practised every conceivable... Um, scenario that I might get bullied about having my dad as a teacher and that was mild um but I had it there I'd go well that's probably one so it was it's sort of how you deal with hecklers like no Mm. if you see someone deal with a heckler really well it's probably because they've thought of it before or they've had a similar heckle and they didn't do so well and then they went back I wish I'd have done that um it's that sort of uh building up your arsenal yeah so to speak Esprit d'escalier that comedians have writing in their little notebooks. It's a time when you put thought into if somebody says something unkind to me, I could turn around and make something funny out of it. And before you email in, I don't know who my biological father is. And it I'm was not... Deborah, actually, not Karen. Yeah. <laughs> it was me. It was me. Um, <laughs> and in another way, I saw that your creativity in the book was so interesting. Uh, like, it was an interesting mind, and I, I wanted to see a drama or a comedy drama about your life in Tasmania growing up because there were so many just beautiful moments, and this is one that just appears in the book that I just found so incredible. Um, you'd been given a Barbie doll by your neighbours, Nan and Pop, not really a Nan and Pop, just uh, a very... Next-door neighbours. I just couldn't be bothered saying Mr and Mrs Cubank. So it was... They just became Nan, became Nan and Pop. Pop. But you had a very special, close relationship yep, with your every single day and had biscuits and chatted about your day. And once they gave you a Barbie doll and you immediately ripped the head and legs off to see how it worked. They don't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I always was interested in the way the, the things worked. And I wasn't attached to dolls, spoiler alert. So they gave me a doll and I'm like, I don't know what to do with dolls. Oh, their arms move. And I wanted to check out the ball and socket joint there. So that, that didn't go down well with Nana. No, because Nana was, you know, Pop was like, you know, he saw me as like a little girl as the most the world imagines a little girl would be and hadn't clocked a lot of the, the clues otherwise. Um, 
<laughs> so he gave me this Barbie doll ripoff for Christmas once, and I just did that. And Nan was like, don't you do that. Like, this is a gift to yours. You know, and he gave me the lesson I probably needed to, you know, pretend to be appreciative um, when <laughs> gifts are given. Um, it's a good lesson to learn. Um, but then I believe you And then you're... <laughs> you were given a jewellery box uh, by... did not read the room. <laughs> he didn't read the Nan room. Nan didn't have a conversation with him, did he? Did she? <laughs> I don't know. No. So he gave Hannah a jewellery box. So Hannah was like, I know how to... I'm desperate to pretend that I really like this, but also can't wait to get it home to find out how it works. And it's just this paragraph that's just a beautiful little scene. All right, here we go. Happy to help. It was fantastic. Once I worked out that the ballerina was moved about by a magnet, I swapped her out for the Monopoly dog, to the bottom of which I had glued a coiled-up paperclip. And I stuffed the ballerina into one of the drawers. Next, I disengaged the music so my little dog could circle about in peace. And last of all, I wallpapered the mirrors with scraps of material I'd been collecting from the piles of offcuts that gathered underneath Mum's sewing machine. I was exceedingly proud of my renovations, although now that I have described it, it does sound like I turned it into a tiny David Lynchian funeral diorama. And that's what I think you later did to comedy to create <laughs> Nanette. Nanette. A funeral diorama. I did. That's... That's absolutely the same thing. You were doing it all the time. You were going, oh, how does this Barbie work? Oh, uh, this is a jewellery box, but it's made for people with femme gender expression. It's, it's a cut, it's cardboard cutout. And I want to, A, work out how it works, and B, make it for, more for someone like me. I want a dog on it. Don't want this music track. Just dog um, doing circling, circle work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, it, but it still looks like a jewellery box, and that's what you were saying before about Nanette. And I think uh, that's what I took from this anyway. But then again, I am extremely insightful. Um, uh, and I, I just, yeah, I love some of the other, the other delightful uh, things that went on in your, in your life and your childhood and your head. But we've who, got to take audience questions. Who do you think should play the movie, me in the movie version of my life? Okay, um... Well, firstly, you. You could play it. But as a child, you Not want to play it as a child. Yeah, I can't get away with that anymore. No. Well, I'm probably gonna play some... My I'm going to play my mum. Yeah. I mean, uh, some unknown child, no doubt. Um, but as a teenager, if, if, if you as a grown-up... I mean, Melissa McCarthy could do it. She's not Australian. Ah, does that matter? Um, any, I thought any... Kate Blanchett... She likes to take on the moody lesbian roles, doesn't she? She does. <laughs> oh, cheekbones. She was at your show the other she night, was, though. I saw yeah. her backstage. I had the most exquisitely awkward conversation with her. <laughs> she's can, very nice. Can, but, you, can you tell us? Well, she's very nice. I said, oh, thank you so much for coming to see the show. She was very complimentary. And then I said, uh, you know, uh, I asked her a question. She answered. And then... <laughs> I didn't know whose turn it was. Um... <laughs> And then after a few beats, I thought, I think it's mine. And so I just said, I don't get less awkward. And she laughed and then she said, I think I might go. <laughs> and I took that to mean she was leaving. But no, she just walked over there and talked to someone else. And I was just like, <laughs> I think she was, I don't know. I can't take it personally. It was a very, anyway, Well, you g'day. talk about, you, t- you, you talk about uh, uh, 
offbeat celebrity encounters in your show. So I think she was giving you the gift. She really was. Of another story to tell. Very generous performer. Very, very generous. (laughs) Before we go to audience questions, I want to ask you about this third section of the book. Because it's, it's just so beautifully weaved that you'll get a personal story and then it will tie in with something legal that was happening at the same time in Tasmania. Or illegal, am I right? Yes, no. indeed. Um, some, some form of legality. And it's absolutely extraordinary. I had no idea how homophobic Tasmania had been and quite how hard they'd fought to keep yeah. the laws in place. The, 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 there's a section of the book that I trace my formative years, which is... Uh, from um, you know 1988 to 1998, uh, which was my, between 10 and 20 years old, and that's the decade that the gay rights debate was the the most uh, vitriolic. And so I'm, it's very difficult to write about something historical when you're a child during that time. So I sort of you know inter, interchange between those. Uh, and try and explore how I began to be aware of these things. So in the beginning, when I'm 10. I have to just, you know, as the the older grown-up writer person, just say this was also happening at the same time. And then as that goes on, you start to see how the uh, internalised homophobia sort of came through uh, through that debate. And I put that in there because I see these kinds of debates happening now about trans rights, um, uh, and you see that happening with uh, racism and all sorts of different things. You, you know, we're having these debates that are so toxic and poisonous. Um, I don't know what to do about it, but I just like to get... It's happened before, and it does damage. Yes, it's a real insight that if that's coming out of the television all the time and you're hearing grown-ups around you talk about people like you, and in some way or another inside you know your people like you, how structurally violent it can be. And you talk about the fight that gay people were making during these years. Here it says the laws were justified on public health and moral grounds... Although this is homosexuality being illegal in Tasmania, although they were careful to make a distinction between homosexuals and homosexual acts, stating the laws pertained only to the latter. By evoking morality in this defence, it is clear that the Tasmanian government was hell-bent on keeping homosexuals subjugated to a criminal class. I don't know how this relates to privacy, but it is an unequivocally appalling idea to actively want to defend. It was fiercely defended in 1993, however particularly along the northwest coast of Tasmania. And then you relate this to something that happened to you. Um, and you've talked about this attack in the net, but I haven't really heard you talk about it in this way. Would you be open to reading just uh, this part? Do you need to give it some context? Uh, I mean, I was, was beaten up. Um, and it was quite violent. And a lot of Nanette was trying to acknowledge that that had happened to me and also acknowledge to my audience that it was part of my story. It's very much embedded into Nanette. I understood the attack as being homophobic. In many ways, this was a completely reasonable assumption, given that Tasmania was rife with it at the time. But as I began to re-examine what happened, I could no longer believe that I was assaulted because of my sexuality alone. It was my gender expression that had invited the brunt of the violence. If I had looked like what he expected a woman to look like, it would never have happened as it did. I think he hit me because he saw me as being incorrectly female. I think he hit me because he saw me as a threat to his masculinity. But most of all, I think he hit me because he saw it as his job as a man 
to enforce the rules as he understood them. And at the time, I could only agree with him because I had been raised in the same school of toxic masculinity. Mm. There's that silence you were talking about earlier. Yeah, it's yeah. palpable, isn't it? Yeah, it really um, is. Yeah, it's that, the idea of being incorrectly female, that really, that really shot off the page at me. The idea that, it, yes, it, it's, it's not just about who you are, but it's about how you express who you are. And that somehow, you know, almost like in a computer program, it's a glitch, it's a glitch, it's a glitch. But also he was living in a world where this was publicly, constantly debated on the television. Is this wrong? Is this... And the, and the, the language that was used, and some of the language in the book really... I mean, sort of, you know, when something's not surprising, but it's also shocking at the same time. It was like Reddit was in Parliament. <laughs> uh, indeed and I, I think this is something everyone needs to read because we do see parallels you know we, it's coming back now in parts of Europe in Poland it's coming back in Russia it's coming back this kind of extreme uh, brutal homophobia but as you say the trans debate the way it's escalating and the language that's used and the fear mongering that's going on it does seem if you read this book it's, it's really hard to argue that, well, it's only a debate, it's only a debate, we need, we need more debate, we need more debate. It's wedge politic templates. So these people who are firing and putting oxygen into these debates, ultimately the topic, the issue does not matter to them. It's dividing marginalised communities. It is setting marginalised communities against each other as if we can't all have human rights at once. It's that fear of scarcity, and it's the same playbook, and we just have to be smarter. Yeah, we keep falling for it. And I think, yeah, we have to. If we don't team up, we're not going to win. Um, and so I think... You're a coach. You're a coach. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Let's do some audience questions. Mary says... Are you having a nice time here? Yes. Sorry, really wanted to ask something deep but couldn't think of anything. Yeah, good question, I'm Mary. Good question. Uh, surprisingly, I'm having a nice time. <laughs> Despite the broken leg, the COVID and the shingles. <laughs> it's been a real treat. <laughs> it's really lovely to be back on stage, though. It's been a quiet couple of years. Yes, hasn't it? Oh, being locked in. I'm, I'm appreciating every single time I'm on stage, I appreciate it. Every night I go home, just the energy of the audience and the joy I have with other performers and the wonderful... You know, this would have been on Zoom. Oh. oh. <laughs> it's triggering, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Sarah, a.k.a. Chappers. I assume it's also known as Chappers and that's not... Your middle name isn't Acker. Um, or it could be Sarah Acker Chappers. Um, it is now. <laughs> Godslay. Um, uh, the question is, hey, pal. And then it says, if you had to separate your life into a before and an after, what would be the defending event in the middle? Or do you mean defining? Defining, I think. Defining, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, it does say defining. It's just the eyes look like ease. I see. The defining event in the middle. Shut up. a bit of shade at you there. <laughs> Sorry, Akka. Akka clappers. What? <laughs> Is it clappers? I've said that. Chappers. It's very different. Uh, can you, very can different, you, isn't you it? Call some of the audience. Ac-clappers. I'm so sorry, Sarah. Hannah would love to answer that question. <laughs> uh, 
I think for a very long time it was that moment at the bus stop where I was beaten up because it that very much felt like when I stopped feeling at all safe in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, before that moment, I felt comfortable, you know, around men. I grew up with a lot of men in my family and had no reason to really fear that. And uh, because it was sort of the same time that I was grappling with my sexuality and I felt like I'd been driven out of my family unit, even though it's not as simple as that. Um, that was definitely the moment that I was trying to repair uh, with Nanette. And now, on the other side of Nanette, I feel like I perhaps achieved that. I feel like that disassociation, that um, brokenness and brittleness has been repaired. And so now I very much look at it like Nanette is, is that point now. I am. You've healed your trauma with art. Or you've, or you've, you've built, I wouldn't you've want built to call something. this a template for anyone else to do because it was extreme. Mm. <laughs> so it's not like, hey, here's a 10 steps to heal your trauma. Don't do this. It was a lot. Um, but there was something about the process uh, and, uh, you know, putting it together, pulling it apart and putting it back together again. They say a, a coherent narrative is your pathway out of trauma, but I believe you also need an audience that hears it. Mm-hmm. and takes it. Like, I think that is definitely part That's of... That's what I said before, the, the witness, the credible witness. And sometimes you do need a witness. Well, if you're you or me. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much the last line of Nanette too. So, like, yeah. it's, you know, it was like, take care of my story. But mm. I didn't expect so many people to do that. Mm. And the response from Nanette was profound. You know, like, it meant so much and many different things to many people people I wouldn't have assumed that I had anything in common with or any difficulties in common with. And it's a far bigger thing than me. And that, I think, helps you heal trauma, to feel a part of something that is bigger than you. Yes. And I think Nanette's created a community of people who can speak to each other online or a language to discuss, a framework to discuss their own... I wouldn't uh, say it created, but it's certainly part of that. Yeah, it's a part of the conversation, or it's it's helped people find each other. Uh, Sarah says, "What do you think of cancel culture?" Oh, it's mate, it's not a thing. It's just like I think, I think the people who are most upset with cancel culture are, are people who don't have to worry about it. I think if you're somebody who is finding their audience online and don't have a support network. Um, I think that cancel culture is very real. You know, your audience can turn around and disappear you and you can lose your community if you've built it online through your art and I think that definitely happens. But the people who complain about it, it is not relevant to. You can't cancel Ricky Gervais. You just can't. It's too, it's, it's too much. You know, like, we're, we're trying to have a conversation with these people, these people who think that they can influence our culture without any accountability. And I, so I think I call that council culture. We're just trying to... Like, like, we, you know, we have the means to interact with these voices now and they're just not used to it. And so I just... Like, I think it's a, it's a dangerous place to be um, finding your voice online and I think it's... There's very, a lot of toxicity and bullying that goes on, but people at my level, it's not relevant. Unless you do something really terrible and then good. <laughs> Go home, have a think. 
Ellen asks, uh, what do you say to people who say, well, you can't be autistic, you're a comedian and you're successful? And Nobody so. ever says that to my face, to be clear. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who dare? Um, <laughs> actually, no, someone did. Uh, <laughs> I remember the reason. But it's, it's very easy for me to take that apart now, but in the first few years of my diagnosis, it was incredibly painful because I was still grappling with understanding that and also the grief that comes with a late diagnosis. Um, so pretty much how I deal with it is what I'm doing. I've become an autistic advocate, um, trying to express what's happening inside of us as opposed to what is observed. Mm -hmm. uh, you certainly are. A phenomenal one of those. To, um, to be clear, I can't represent everyone on the spectrum. It is incredibly idiosyncratic experience, mm -hmm. but it's a start. Mm -hmm. Yes, we need many more autistic voices. Uh, Caroline says, how did it feel starting to write Douglas after the, after the success of Nanette? Uh, was the focus on structure, which was brilliant? Uh, in, is, it says something in that... Oh, was the focus on structure in that show deliberate... Uh, and how... Uh, this is thrilling. How did that affect... <laughs> Sorry, I'm this finding it hard to read. How would body work compared to that? Okay, Thanks. okay. So, thank you. We should have gone straight to the source. Cut out the middleman. Yeah. <laughs> Middle woman, I'm a feminist. Did it great. It's a great question. Um, there was a lot of pressure, I guess, on Douglas because of the success of Nanette, but it was really... It was easy for me to um, reverse engineer myself out of that because I wrote Nanette very much in a thing of, like, I don't care if this alienates my audience or it, it diminishes my, my audience and I am left with only a few people who are my fans. Like, it was very much, I am now going to just say what I feel like I need to say in a moment and I'll deal with the consequences of that. And so I took the same spirit with Douglas um, and in that just putting that framework on it, it's like, I will, you know, do this thing that I want to do and we'll see how people take it. Um, people came in with their own expectations. I can't help that. But having said that, I, I always write a show with an idea of how I want an audience to feel. Um, and with Nanette, I wanted to shock people. I wanted to shake them and just go, listen, listen. Uh, with, with Douglas, I really just wanted to reach inside people's brains and rummage around, just really... And that's, that's, that's how, why structure became a thing, because you have something to hang on. With body of work, I wanted, to give it, I wanted a feeling of a hug. It's a warm show. So that's how what I, you know, start... Like, a, there's two things, like, what am I... Th the type of things I'm thinking about when I begin to write a show and the type of effect I want to put out into the world. Um... Maybe Kate Blanchett was just hanging around to study you so she could play the role. She'd be very good. She'd be very yeah. awkward. She'd be very good. Um, <laughs> she's very nice. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Where um, am I? This, is, <laughs> this has been really wonderful. I really, really cannot recommend this book highly enough. Neither I, can I. I need to shift some units. <laughs> I do think I can tell... You know, sometimes we joke about things that take a long time to write, but I can tell it was being written like a layer cake. And then after Nanette, it's like it all came into place. I do think it's a solid piece of work. You know, sometimes solid. people do it. Put that on the dust jacket. <laughs> solid piece of work. It's Deborah Francis White. Solid. It's solid. solid. But it is. I, well, do you know what? Do you know what the reason I say this? 
is a lot of times someone has, has a successful show and then the, whoever's produced it goes, knock up a book for Christmas. Oh, Do you did, know what I mean? That's what they wanted and I disappointed so many people. They're like, quick now. Yeah, I'm like, mm. and you were right to do this because this is not a book you give someone at Christmas. I mean, do you give can, it to them for please, Christmas. Please, do, I don't know what you're doing. Do Solid, give it, not do, for Christmas. Do, do give, come on, help me out. Do give it. I was going somewhere. Do give it for someone for Christmas. In fact, give it to everyone you know for Christmas. <laughs> I'm saying it's not something Easter sooner. It, <laughs> Everyone's got a birthday almost between now and Christmas. Yeah, That's an example of something you could do. Just no, give it away. I mean, it's not something that you... You know those Christmas books that are like tied into a show that people put in the loo? It's not that. It's... But you can do that. I don't mind. <laughs> just, you don't have to read it. Just... Just buy it. Shift you... some units. <laughs> Listen, buy it, leave it on your coffee table. People are going to think you're clever. Um, it is no. What I'm saying is, everyone should read it and everyone should give it it's as a solid. gift. It's solid. It's a. I already said it was a master. I said, what did I say at the beginning? Something solid. of a master. I didn't. I said something of a masterpiece. I said at the beginning. So what did I say to lower your? <laughs> what did I do? Did I do that badly? When 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 we started, I felt. But it's just solid now. <laughs> I meant I didn't. I it's said, a masterpiece. But it's, all right, you said it, a few things. It's no. undone. It's just solid. No. I, what I meant was, I'd already said all the superlatives, and I meant, what I was trying to say was... It's fibre. I, <laughs> I was trying to say, it's like, it's, it's got many, many, many layers, because it's been written over a number of years. It and sounds it just, like a shit now. Like, you had to... It has many, many layers. It's solid. <laughs> Took a long time. <laughs> Don't give it to people for Christmas. <laughs> Don't read it in the loo. Okay, let me give you a quote. It's meta. <laughs> Five stars. Solid. But, but should be six. Uh, an intricate work of genius, which is what we've come to know and expect from Hannah Gadsby. But she leaps over even our lofty expectations. Solid. Hannah Gadsby, um, you have been an absolute joy. Is there anything you, you came to say that you didn't get to say? Any more shows coming up in the UK? No, I'm done. Oh, 12th of, oh, sometime in December, I'm coming okay. back for a panto. I'm not. Um, imagine. <laughs> but globally, this show I all... startle so easily. <laughs> this... Who's behind me? I'm going to see my first panto in December, I've decided, but I have to take a Xanax because it's... <laughs> It yeah, seems very overwhelming. I'll I don't go think, to the pato I don't think it's horrible. sensory. Com- Are you can't go to the pato here. Sorry? They're horrible for autistic. Uh, yes, I imagine. <laughs> but I want, I want the wildlife. So I'll take his... <laughs> I take okay. some MDMA. <laughs> <laughs> He's behind you. <laughs> oh, no, he isn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Etc. Yeah, it's unsettling on many levels. Um... Uh, Listen, wherever you're listening to this in the world, uh, go to Hannah Gadsby's website, see where she's performing, go there. Uh, she's also got uh, various specials on the television and there's a fantastic book and I believe Buy she it. needs to shift some units. Shift some units, guys. <laughs> Don't wait right for now. Christmas. Um, listen, we're going to close with some music. Uh, so I'm going to introduce the musician. Would you like to... Do you want to hang around for that or are you going to go and sit in the audience? Hang on, what? 
You want me to introduce them? No, I'm going to introduce oh, them. God, because I don't know what they are. No, <laughs> I just wanted to give you the... Thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, should, should we stay? I'll sit here awkwardly by their side. Okay, great. <laughs> All right, I like to stay because I like to watch. This is the best seat in the house. I'm going to come over here. Our musician tonight is a phenomenal talent. She... Solid. <laughs> Her EP is spectacular. I went to the launch and I've been listening to it nonstop ever since. I really want to introduce you to her because I think you need to know her and I think you then all need to go to Bandcamp because I think that's where she gets paid and download and just spread the word. And I think when you've seen her, you absolutely will. Please welcome to the stage with a big guilty feminist welcome, the incredible Samphire. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is by far the biggest audience I've ever had. And um, it's a really special evening. That was brilliant, hilarious, insightful, beautiful, solid. solid. <laughs> Absolutely solid. Absolutely solid. Um, yeah, complete joy to share the stage with you. As Deborah said, I'm Samphire, and um, I released an EP in February, so I'm going to perform a couple of songs from that. It's a waiting game So look ahead, that's what they'd say Growing up's about the chase Wait your turn and play for change Paternal vision and beady eyes Blinding me from what passed by I had dimmed out either side Keeping just the end inside I was Muddled in mistakes For God's sake A million retakes Why couldn't I just catch a break? Why was I living for a future? Not today Hoping that with age All these questions would be
Thank you very much. We have just one more song for you tonight. Um, The EP is called Time, and it's um, actually started as a collection of poems which I had written and I found kind of revolved around that theme and then um, put music to. But yeah, if you like it, then please check it out. It's on all streaming services. And um, uh, yeah, this next one's called Restless. Now it's time to provide Just someone inside Concealing wounded pride Victim of expectations I don't want to realize Cause I miss this My roots don't stretch so low And I'm reluctant to grow How don't you
Sunfire, everybody. Well done. That was amazing. That was phenomenal. And we find you on social media at Sound yeah, of Sunfire. At Sound of Sunfire. And streaming. Is there any way you'd prefer us to get it? Um, it's just remember the spelling S A M F I R E U, one word. Okay, we need to shift some units. Yes. Okay. <laughs> thank you units. very, very much. And thank you to you three as well. Your yes. men, you don't know, we don't normally have men here. So yeah, we'll... I know. <laughs> so I just didn't think they were worth introducing, really. Um... <laughs> Introduce them. We like men. So we have my amazing co-producer and multi-instrumentalist, Q. Um, my guitarist, Chat. And my drummer, Joey. All, all brilliant men. All feminists. Well, we'd love to have you back again. We really thought that was fantastic. And thank you, lads. Please come back anytime. Solid. <laughs> Did you think that was solid? Solid. It was solid. Absolutely solid. Uh, phenomenal. Thank you so much. Uh, you've been a fantastic audience. I just need to tell you uh, a couple of things. One is on the 31st of March, we're doing a, a show called Campus Christmas. It was, it's, it's the artist formerly known as Campus Christmas. Now it's Campus Springtime. And it's for Say It Loud Club, and it's run, which is run for and by LGBTQ plus refugees. And uh, they've started their own organisation. A guy called Aloysius, who came from Uganda was tortured in Uganda uh, for distributing LGBT, uh, well, actually safe sex pamphlets in his university. He's here. He's created this incredible thing. But it's a, such a small organisation that nobody really raises money for anything like that. You know, it's all the big stuff. So we're putting on a show. Tom Allen and I are co-hosting. Self-Esteem is doing a full 20-minute set. May Martin is on the bill. Kimar Bob is on the bill. Uh, Sophie Duca, I think, um, Anyway, there's lots of incredible people on the bill. Uh, there's an amazing uh, drag act called Dosa Cat. Um, so you, you've got to come along to that. There's not that many tickets left. It's at the Union Chapel. It's a 900 seat, and there's not that many tickets left. But I'd really love to sell it out because we need the money. Um, and all the money is going to this amazing charity and also Can Do Action, which helps alarm Syrian schools against airstrikes. Um, so please, please, please come along if you can. We're doing lots of other brilliant shows. We're touring around the UK um, so check out everything we're doing at guiltyfeminist.com and if you could subscribe to the podcast that would really help and maybe tell someone about it if you're going to review it give it five stars and if you could just leave one word review solid um, <laughs> that really help me out or in fact flame which is a new piece of slang that I'm going to make happen and it has, it's taking off flame instead of fire it's really taking off Hannah yeah yeah <laughs> It's understandable. You've also stopped amplifying yourself. Uh, yeah. I stopped listening. <laughs> um, Hannah, thanks for coming and joining us tonight. You are Thank a you. real Thank treasure. You. Thank, you. Thank you to everyone at King's Place. Thank you to everyone who came out. We've been the Guilty Feminists. I've been Deborah Francis White. Good night. <laughs> You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, and my very special guest, Hannah Gatsby, with music from Samfire. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The sound engineer was Chris Sharp. The producer for The Spontaneity Shop was Tom Selinski. Thanks to Gina DCO, Jenny Shamash, Bjorn and Jody at UTA, and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Um, I was going to call for those at some point, but Tom's Tom's efficient. Um, it doesn't sound on ceremony. Um,
there's some things I screenshot earlier today. Thank you, darling. Um, the Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Want to find the perfect Father's Day card? Dad deserves better than a drugstore card. This year, surprise him with a special personalized card from Moonpig. You can add your favorite photos and a heartfelt message. Plus, no more worrying about stamps or going to the post office, because we'll mail it for you the same day. Every dad deserves a Moonpig card. Get your first card free with code PODCAST at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place, or from She-Hulk, or from social media and my activism. I Way basically started as a social movement, and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn, and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Way with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists, and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Roland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday, and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now.